have a more attentive eye through the psalm as we read. The whole psalm is explaining verse 1 and feeding into this idea. Verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So it might be helpful to define our terms before we begin. What do we mean by fret? In biblical language, the idea of a fretting is an idea of burning. Um, we, we have many words like this in even our own language. I can talk about my anger being kindled. I can talk about being incensed. There's a flame language in all of this. And we can be incensed, kindled, or inflamed in multiple ways. We can be kindled in anger. We can be kindled with envy. We can be kindled or inflamed with fear. All of these things boil down to the same idea. Don't let your heart rate elevate because of evildoers. Don't be overly concerned, whether it is in anger, envy, or fear. If we ask ourselves then, okay, I don't want to fret, but when I think of evildoers, who am I thinking of? And there's many we can be thinking of, and The psalm will define, as we go through, what the wicked do, which will help put meat on the bones of what our definition is. But looking at verse 12, just to get a basic idea right away. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The wicked, the evildoers in this psalm, are those who hate God and hate his people. And we can see this in all spheres of life, especially if we think of the different spheres of authority that we're normally engaged with. with. You think of government leaders, people with governmental power that hate God and the great trouble they cause God's people all through history. We think of in our employment or in times past, the masters of slaves, people that hated God and afflicted God's people through that authority with which they are given. Think of many times where church authority or religious authority is used by those who hate God and afflict God's people as a result of it. And perhaps most frightening to us is when we think of in our own families, in our own homes, and what that can look like when in such an intimate setting we have those that hate God and are evildoers and seek to afflict God's people however they can. Evildoers are everywhere for many of us in all of those spheres. And we're commanded here to fret not because of them. To not burn with anger or envy or fear. So, as we consider these things, please stand with me. We'll read through the psalm. The outline that I want to give you is in verses 1-11. through We're told to fret not because of evildoers, because of God's commands and His promises. In verses 12-22 through and then 32-33, through we're going to see that we're going to fret not because of evildoers, even though they work very hard in their affliction of God's people, the Lord is also working. We're going to see in verses 23 to 31 that we're to fret not because of evildoers, because of God's nature, who He is. Then we'll see some closing exhortations and observations in the last verses, 34 through 40. So, beginning verse 1 of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. 
Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. But their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Please be seated. And please bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a beautiful psalm. A beautiful text. I pray that as Your people have come to to partake of Your Word, to be fed this food, this bread, that You would feed Your people, that You would bless them to hear Your Word, to understand Your Word, and to be changed. 
that you would work mightily among us this morning. Lord, we need you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're looking at the first 11 verses with, a, with an eye to the commands and promises of God. And I think if you look closely, you'll see that pattern. There's a command given, and there's a promise given. There's a command given, and there's a promise given. And we can just float through these to see these commands in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Command. Verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. It's a command. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Command. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Command. Verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So then we look at the promises. Verse 2. The promise. They will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 4. If you delight yourself in the Lord, command, He will give you the desires of your heart. Promise. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him. Command, and He will act. Promise. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verses 9 through 11, no commands, all promise. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And just as we consider these things right away, I want to immediately dispel any kind of idea that we're obeying these commands to obtain what is promised. It doesn't even make sense. Because the wicked are going to fade whether I fret or not. Right? It's a promise. They will fade. And nothing I do will hasten the fading or slow it down. The Lord will do what He's promised. For those that belong to the Lord, we delight in Him. What is given is the desires of our heart as gift, not reward. He's promised that He will act. And so... Again, right here at the beginning, we don't want to think that we have a pressure to obey these commands, otherwise the promises will not be for us. Rather, we flip it. These promises are ours. Therefore, we obey. We are freed to pursue obedience because we already have these promises of God. So why obey? Why obey these commands? Well, because... God is worthy of our obedience by definition. His commands are good. And there are these wonderful promises that motivate us to obedience. So considering these things more intently, verses 1 and 2, the command, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Promise, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And what's wonderful about this is when we consider uh, systematic theology, we consider, you know, the final state, heaven and hell, life after death, we often rightly assume that the vast majority of our information on this comes from the New Testament. That's true. The vast majority of it comes from the lips of our Lord Himself. But not all of it. And it's amazing, this verse literally makes no sense. It's nonsense without an idea of life after death. 
Because the righteous often do not outlive the wicked. We can think, just for an example, from World War II, there were many Christians who died in concentration camps before Hitler died. They did not see him fade away before their death. So there's more here than this life. What is promised is that the wicked will fade and wither, and the implication is there is a time where God's people will not fade and wither and will be around to observe the fading and the withering of the wicked. In other words, in the very beginning, we have a promise that there is a life after this for the righteous where the wicked will not be. And there is an utter separation of the righteous and the wicked where the wicked will be unable to afflict the righteous anymore. And so we're commanded to fret not because their time is short. And the implied promise is that our time is not short. We have eternal life. And so we are more prepared to obey the command. What else do we see? Verses 3 through 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we think about the desires of our heart. The wicked often in this life have much. They have honor, fame, power, wealth. Many things that are good in and of themselves, but they have it and use it for wickedness. And if we want to use an allusion to what Christ says of the Pharisees in Matthew 6, they have many of the desires of their heart now and they have their reward. And then they will die. We will have the desires of our heart, which by God's grace is the greatest thing. We delight in the Lord, we will be given the Lord. Psalm 16 puts this very beautifully. We heard it in Psalm 73 too this morning, but Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What more beautiful inheritance could there be than the Lord Himself? In the new heavens and new earth, we will have God be our God and we will be His people, unmediated presence with God for eternity. Unfading, unwithering. And so again, we're better equipped to delight ourselves in the Lord because we're promised we'll be given the desires of our heart. We're promised that because of these desires of our heart being fulfilled, we can trust Him and do good and dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And when I think of that wonderful promise, He will act. So many people in the history of the church, in the history of Israel, they cry out, How long, O Lord? How long must I wait? And the promise is, He will act. We think of Abraham, who was as good as dead, and yet finally the child of promise came. He acted. We think of the Exodus, 400 years in slavery in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh, crying out, How long, O Lord, do you even hear us? But He will act, and He did. We see in the exile, the Jews taken in exile in Babylon, many of them 
thinking that this is the end of their civilization, the end of their people, the end of their relationship with God, and yet they were commanded to trust, lay down roots. The Lord will act, and he did. The 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and Christ's coming, a long time to wait without any word from God, and yet there was a promise he will act, and he did. And so for us, in our own dealings with the wicked, when we wonder, do you see the affliction I'm dealing with? Do you understand my fear and my apprehension at the power and the predatory nature of the wicked? We're told to trust Him. He will act. And He's shown Himself to be faithful. Through all of history, we have no reason to doubt it. Verse 6 is beautiful. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow on which every one of your plans hang. Every single plan that you make depends on the sun rising tomorrow, right? And yet as sure as that is, so is it sure that the Lord will vindicate His people. When you are slandered, the Lord will bring about righteousness. So there's no need for wrath or anger or vengeance. As we see in the following verses, we can wait patiently for Him, knowing He will act. He will vindicate His people. Things will be made right. And just to pause and make some observations in this text, one of the beautiful things that's repeated through this psalm that begins in verse 9 is inherit the righteous will inherit the land and the wicked will be cut off. Both of those phrases are repeated five times through this psalm. Three times they occur in the same verse. So in verse 9, verse 22, and verse 34, you see both brought together. The righteous will inherit the land and the wicked will be cut off. In verses 28 and 29, they follow each other. The wicked will be cut off and the righteous will inherit the land. And so the singular focus of this psalm, if you haven't gotten it already, the time of the wicked is short. They will be gone. The time of the righteous is eternal, and you will inherit all things. That is the repeated theme over and over and over again. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, because they will be gone, and you will be around, and you will inherit all things, and you will have the desires of your heart, the Lord Himself. We look at verse 10. This language is so good. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place. He will not be there. I think of, as we consider, we don't even know necessarily, absolutely, the name of the Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus. He is so faded from history, we don't even know for sure what his name was. We just know he was Pharaoh, and that he was wicked. When we consider... The Canaanites, there are no Moabites or Ammonites around today. I can go to the Middle East and I can look for them, but they're not there. They're gone and have faded. Babylon is nothing now. Rome is nothing now, except a bunch of footnotes in a chapter of a history book. All these emperors that afflicted God's people, they're gone. Mussolini, Stalin, Mao, all these great oppressors, wicked people of the last century, they're gone. You can go to their house and find where they lived, but you won't find them. They're not there anymore. The meek shall inherit the earth in verse 11 and delight themselves in abundant peace. 
Perhaps somebody, perhaps somebody might respond, well, that's great, wonderful, beautiful. But that's all future-oriented, right? And the wicked are here now. I need help now. The wicked are pursuing me now. They're looking to devour me now. Does the Lord see? Does He care about now or does He only care about the future? I think of what little comfort it is Say someone's afraid to walk around town after dark and they're terrified and they read the news. They see terrible things happen. And someone comes along and says, well, that's just kind of a stupid thing to be worried about. There's there's no comfort in that. They don't recognize the threat. They don't acknowledge the threat for what it is. So it's no comfort to say, well, you're just stupid for being afraid of that. The psalm does not do that. The psalm in these following verses goes on to address the threat level that actually does exist. The wicked do these many things. And we see it. The Lord sees it. And it is dangerous. But what's even better is that the Lord is acting. And so we see this in verses 12 through 22. And then you get an extra one in verses 32 through 33. We see the activity of the wicked for what it is. Acknowledging the true threat that exists. The danger that they pose to God's people. But... Even better is what the Lord does for His people. So we see in verse 12 that the wicked plot and scheme looking to attack God's people. We see in verse 14 that they actually attack. They draw their weapons to bring down the poor and needy to slay the upright. We see in verse 16 the abundance of the wicked that is there, their power and their wealth. We see in verse 21 they borrow but do not pay back. They're looking to devour and consume the righteous through lies and deceit. In verse 32 we see that They watch for their prey. They hunt. They look to kill. The threat is acknowledged. This is something that it's understandable why you're afraid. They are terrifying. They are powerful. And yet we see the activity of the Lord in the same pattern. The wicked do this. The Lord does this. So let's walk through some of these. Verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. This is true. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And we've gone to this text multiple times to consider the nature of God, but Job 35.6 is so good, even here, when we think of what could possibly be done to the Lord and his people that the Lord does not want to be done. We see in Elihu says in Job 35.6, If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? The answer is nothing. I can throw whatever weapons I want at God. Where would I even throw them? But there's nothing that can be done to the Lord. The Lord laughs. Though the wicked's attempts are terrifying to us, they are pathetic in the power of God. And he laughs... Because of the same theme we've seen over and over again. For he sees that his day is coming. The wicked's time is short. They flail around in wrath and rebellion. But in a short time, they will be no more. We see this thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. In his lifetime, perhaps the most powerful man on the planet. Who in pride lifts himself up to consider himself greater than God and yet is reduced to a dumb ox eating the grass. So futile is the power of the wicked compared to the power of God. 
We see in Psalm 2, perhaps you all even know it off the top of your head, the same theme. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth coming together to attack God's people is a terrifying prospect. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the kings of the earth can do nothing against the Lord's anointed king on Zion, his holy hill. We look at verses 14 and 15, back in Psalm 37. The wicked draw the bow of the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. They have murderous intentions. They seek to do violence. This is no small thing. But in verse 15, their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. We see multiple examples of this in in the history of God's people. The wicked can only do what God allows. And so when wicked Haman seeks to hatch a plot that will destroy every Jew on the face of the planet under the Persian Empire. He makes gallows for Mordecai, the man he hates, to hang him. What happens to him? Ultimately, he is hung on his own gallows that he made. His own plan is crushed upon himself. We see Saul. How does Saul die? That wicked oppressor of the church, wicked oppressor of the Lord's anointed David. He falls on his own sword. We see Pharaoh is lifted up that God may glorify himself and show his power in him, but when the Lord is done with him, he is drowned in the Red Sea, never to to harm God's people again. And so is the great promise here that though the wicked have murderous intentions and are hunting God's people, they can do nothing outside of the Lord's providence, his sovereignty, and when he is done with them, they will be utterly undone, utterly destroyed. In verses 16 through 20, we see an acknowledgement of the abundance of many wicked, but we also see the Lord's provision for the righteous. The arms of the wicked shall be broken in verse 17, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And the beautiful words of verses 18 and 19, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. And this, this way of knowing, this language of knowing, we see it used for both in application to the righteous and the wicked that we see in Psalm 1. And again, you, you may already know what I'm going to refer to, verses one, or 5 through 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish implied is that the Lord does not know the way of the wicked in the way that He knows the way of the righteous. But more explicitly is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. When these people come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Are we not of You? Do we not belong to You? He says, depart from Me, I never knew You. The great comfort is the Lord provides for what the righteous have in their little against what the wicked have in their abundance. The Lord knows the ways of the righteous and does not know the ways of the wicked. 
And though the pattern maintains, it doesn't. Uh, it strikes in the opposite direction in verse 20. What else do the wicked do? Well, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They fade away. In verses 21 through 22, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, and those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The wicked looks to consume and devour however they can, borrowing with no intention of returning. The righteous are able to give generously. Not necessarily because they're wealthy in this life, but because they are wealthy eternally. They will inherit the land. All things are theirs. I can hold on loosely to what I have in this life because I have the whole world that I will inherit in the next. The wicked look to grab and hold on to tightly and cling to whatever they can get and hold on to it viscerally. I'm not going to pay back. This life is all they have and they will be cut off. Verses 32 and 33. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. I think of Joseph and his brothers. If you remember when Joseph is sent to go find his brothers and they see him coming from afar off, their gears start turning in their head. They're thinking like lions circling their prey, how they might devour him and consume him. And yet the Lord preserved him The Lord preserved him as he was taken into Egypt, sold in slavery, in prison for wrongful accusations of rape. The Lord preserved him, and through him, preserved his family and the whole world. We can think of baby Moses, utterly powerless and defenseless, preserved through the wicked Pharaoh's edict that all the Hebrew boys would be destroyed. We think of David and King Saul preserved as he fled from Saul in the wilderness, looking to hide in whatever cave he could find so that he might not be forced into a confrontation with Saul, but he was preserved. Daniel preserved in the lion's den. Baby Jesus, also defenseless. In Bethlehem, when wicked King Herod sought to execute all the Jewish boys, and he was preserved. Now we know this is not a guarantee of temporal deliverance for all of God's people. But these temporal deliverances point to the eternal deliverance. When we see He will not let him be condemned when he is brought to trial, this is ultimately true in the final judgment. The great and final trial. God's people will not be condemned. They will be preserved and they will be delivered and they will be vindicated and shown to be God's people. They will be shown to be righteous. And the wicked will be utterly destroyed. And so as we consider these things, we should fret not because of evildoers. Why? Because God has commanded us and He's offered us such great and beautiful promises. We fret not because of evildoers even though the wicked are all around us seeking to consume, seeking to devour, seeking to kill and destroy. But the Lord is also active. And the Lord's activity is more comforting than the wicked's activity is threatening. We see in verses 23 through 31 that we can continue to answer why we should not fret because of evildoers, because of who our God is. 
And what we see is that God is sovereign, He's faithful, He's just, and He is wise. Verses 23 through 24, we see the sovereignty of the Lord detailed here. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. The Lord establishes the steps of those that he delights in. This isn't saying that the Lord only establishes your steps if you delight in the Lord, but saying that the Lord establishes the steps of those that he delights in. And then we consider, well, how can the Lord be delighted in me? Hebrews 11 answers this question. It's only by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But through the gift of faith, we become objects of delight to the Lord. As wicked as our flesh is, as much as we often still sin, but through faith, we are delightsome to the Lord by His grace. And in that, He establishes our steps. We see an acknowledgement, again, that this is not promising an easy life. Verse 24, Though He fall... We do fall many times, but he shall not be cast headlong. This is the language we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show, that the, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, yes, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. God's people may fall, but they are not cast headlong. We may be vexed in many ways by the wicked, by our own sin, but the Lord does not abandon us. And if we consider the language of 2 Corinthians 4, we find that the opposite is true of the wicked. The wicked are afflicted in in many ways in this life, and whether they're afflicted or not, they are ultimately crushed. The wicked may or may not be perplexed in this life, but they will be driven to despair. They may or may not be persecuted, but they will be forsaken. They may or may not be struck down, but they will be destroyed. And again, this is the repeated great promise of this psalm. The wicked's time is short. No matter how they are afflicting you, no matter how they are attacking you, no matter how you may be tempted to fear them, envy them, or be turned to anger because of them, what they have now is the best that they will have. What you have now is the worst that you will have. Going on to verses 25 and 26, we see the faithfulness of the Lord. And this is so beautiful. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. This is true because the Lord is faithful to his people. This is David's experience, and it is true, I would dare say, of the church's experience generally. We know this is not a promise of an easy life, but it is a promise that ultimately God will provide for His people, but even generally in this life, God's people are provided for. And I, 
I think of many sermons I've heard where the pastor says, and this is a true, this is true, unfortunately. The pastor says, if you walk for the, with the Lord for any length of time, you will see people leave the faith. And that is true. Tragically so. But there's something else in application to this that I think is also true. It, I know is true. If you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you will see God answer prayer for the temporal deliverance of his people. Any significant amount of time you walk with the Lord's people, you will see him answer prayers in this life for the good of his people. He does give bread to his people even now. It's not just future, as if that's not enough. But it's also here and now generally true. And those general truths of temporal provision point to the perfect, the, the perfect the future provision where we will not have any lack of anything ever again. Verses 27 through 29. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The Lord loves justice. And when we think of the terror that the wicked propose to us, oftentimes it's because you have power mixed with hatred of justice. We think of, again, governments that have power, but no love of justice, and the terror that brings upon the people. Again, we can think of our work relationships, and the terror it is to have a boss that has no scruples about lying, cheating, or anything of the sort. We think of church environments where there may be people in authority that hate justice, hate the Lord, and somehow have found themselves in a position of authority and the terrible things that happen as a result of it. And again, we think of fathers and mothers and those in the family that hate justice and the horror stories we hear that come out of families where that is the case. But we're promised that our Lord is not like that. That the most powerful being that is is the very standard of justice himself. And so we can trust all of his promises. We can trust, in verse 28, that the wicked shall be cut off because the Lord loves justice. We can trust that the righteous will inherit the land and dwell upon it forever because he has promised. And his justice demands that he fulfills his promises. You see, in verses 30 through 31, wisdom The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God, of his God, is in his heart and his steps do not slip. When we live in such a wicked world surrounded by such wicked people, we need wisdom. We need it abundantly. I was listening to a podcast on Lot in Sodom this week. And the way they put it was somewhat humorous, but it's a terrible situation. Lot is put in a situation where he is at the end of himself. He does not know what to do. So he tells the men of Sodom, do not do this wicked thing that is on your heart to attack these men that I have under my protection. And in his foolishness and his lack of wisdom, he almost says, don't do this wicked thing, but have you considered this wicked thing? Here, have my daughters. And it illustrates a need for wisdom in this wicked world. Because without wisdom, we're no better. We're going to say, don't do this wicked thing, but do this wicked thing. We need God's wisdom, and God's wisdom is there for us to to provide 
liberally, as the King James says in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. In verse 30, a connection that's really helpful, the word that's translated utters here is also translated meditates in Psalm 1, that on his law he meditates day and night. And so we see that the righteous know that the source of wisdom is the Lord. We need His wisdom through His Word and meditation and through prayer. And so having considered the commands and promises of God, the activity of the wicked and the activity of the Lord, the attributes and nature of God, we come now landing the plane starting in verse 34. We see the summary in many ways of the whole psalm in verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. And again, we see inheritance of the land for the righteous and cutting off for the wicked are brought together again, over and over and over again. This is the great hope offered in this psalm. In verses 35-36, through He says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. He passed away... And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And the image is this great tree that grows and dominates all life around it, absorbing the resources of rain and light and taking it away from everything around it, dominating the landscape. But the tree is temporary. He passed away, and behold, he was no more. And this language is almost like you're looking for him. Man, I I remember that wicked guy. And I'm looking to see if I can find him again, but I can't find him. He's gone. Utterly removed. Utterly gone and forgotten. We come to verse 37. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. And I, I just can't help but ask, well, who's the blameless man that we're marking. Because it's not me. And it's not you. There's only one blameless man. is our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one man of peace. It's the Prince of Peace. Our Lord Jesus. He is the only man who never raised a rebel fist against the Father. He never failed to obey the commands of God, nor did he fail to trust his promises. He never failed to consider the works of his Father, and he never doubted God's sovereignty, faithfulness, justice, or wisdom, even once, even for a moment. And the beautiful thing is, there is a future for the man of peace, and because there's a future for him, there's a future for me, who belongs to him. My future is tied to his. That's what's so beautiful about him, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It's all because he lives. There's a future for that man. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. So we mark him. We look to him. Because the only reason we inherit the land is because there's a future for the man of peace. There's a future for the blameless man. And in him, we also are blameless. And in him, we inherit all things, including the Lord himself. We might ask ourselves, how, how do I partake of Christ? How do I obtain this future for the man of peace? 
that the wicked will not have. And beautifully, verses 39 and 40 tell us, salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. What do we do in these verses? We trust God. We have faith in Him. We take refuge in Him. That's it. What does the Lord do? He gives salvation. He becomes our stronghold. He helps us. He delivers us. He does it all. He provides all these things that we need. Salvation is totally and completely from the Lord. Our inheritance of the land in the future is totally and entirely gift from the Lord. The fact that the wicked will fade and wither and we will be around to see it is entirely gift. And not based on our performance in any way, shape, or form. So we can ask, are you taking refuge in the Savior? Are you trusting Him? Are you waiting for Him? Fret not. You will inherit the land. You will inherit all things. You will inherit the Lord Himself. There is nothing the wicked can do to you that will jeopardize any of that. As the wicked looks to claw and grasp at anything they can possibly get, whatever we lose, we get the world. We get God Himself. And for any who are here this morning who do not love the Lord, who hate Him, and however you found yourself here this morning, this is a terrifying psalm for you. Your time is short. You will be cut off and you will be no more. So our exhortation, whether you know the Lord or whether you don't, whether you know Him and are not at peace right now because you're struggling to avoid fretting because of evildoers, peace is available looking to Christ. Look to Him, behold Him, meditate on Him. Remember the promises He's made and cling to them. Pastor Caleb, come forward. Let's pray.